This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome once again to our program. I hope your week has gone well and you've managed to keep your mind happy to some extent. Of course, in this type of existence, we can't be happy all the time, but having the Buddha Dharma to help us, we can try to get as much happiness out of life as possible as we work towards enlightenment. In fact, in our progress through the path to enlightenment in this series of programs, we've come to the point of mind training particularly focused on what to do when things get difficult in life. It's called transforming adverse conditions into the path. Those of you who were with us last week might remember that we started going through a mind training text called Seven Points of Mind Training by a Tibetan master named Chikawa. Transforming adverse conditions into the path is part of that. In the text we went through verses on how to develop conventional and ultimate bodhicitta, conventional bodhicitta being the mind that is determined to attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, and ultimate bodhicitta being the experiential understanding of how reality exists. So, just to recap, the verse on conventional bodhicitta reminds us of the method of exchanging our self-cherishing attitude for an attitude that cherishes others. And we went through the way of visualizing taking others' suffering onto ourselves while breathing in and giving them all our good fortune and happiness while breathing out. The verse on ultimate bodhicitta instructs us to meditate on how things do not have independent inherent existences like we think they do. Everything exists as a collection of causes, conditions and parts coming together and then labelled by mind. That is all. It also tells us that when we are not meditating to see everything as a dream, not having the solid unyielding existence we think it does. We should see it all in the same way as a magician sees the illusions he creates to fool his audience. He knows it's an illusion, even though the audience is amazed at what he can do. It's not easy to see things in that way, though, because we're so used to our hallucinated vision of reality. So when things get difficult in life, we tend to get upset, and then our Dharma practice suffers. The next section of the text gives us some advice how to deal with such situations. But before we go on to that, let's take a little time out to set our motivation for participating in the program today. Remember, the best motivation is to gain enlightenment so you can be the best help to all beings. So if you can, please try to generate that type of motivation. If that's too big an ask, think of your own liberation and eventual enlightenment. But please, don't set in motivation just for this life. That's so small, and if you get any benefit out of such a motivation, it will last for a very short time. So let's try to set a great motivation. Thank you. Now on to the text and what to do when things turn bad. In the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, I have some training in, it's commonly said that when you start practicing the Dharma, obstacles and difficult situations seem to multiply. Instead of things getting easier, they sometimes seem to have got much worse. Actually, when we turn away from the normal ways of viewing things and act in ways opposite to our usual habituated patterns, what else can we expect? Of course, things will get difficult. 
This is not just something that happens to us, though. It's been happening ever since the Buddha started teaching. In fact, if you remember, after he became enlightened, he sat for a while wondering whether he should teach or not. He thought people would not understand or be able to practice what he told them. So even the ancients came up against problems like we are doing, and that's why mind training techniques like those we are about to discuss were, were gleaned from the Buddha's teachings. Normally when things become difficult, when we get seriously ill or when mental ag agitation becomes too much, any Dharma practice we are used to doing suffers. It may even stop altogether. Recently, one of the people who came come to the meditation class I run had a bit of an upset in her life. She had to suddenly move house without much say about whether she wanted to or not. She stopped coming to the class, and when I saw her again at a function we both attended, she told me that even her meditation had stopped. And this was someone who had been meditating faithfully for years. So even for the more experienced of us, practice can take a backseat in difficult times when in fact we need it most. It's easy in such times to get so depressed or angry that our problems totally overtake our minds. We're filled with negative, uncomfortable thoughts and may do things that cause us even more harm. All this, of course, is just the cause for more negative karma, so we continue to suffer in the future. Often it's impossible to change the circumstances. Like my friend from the meditation class couldn't change the circumstance that meant she had to leave her home. But we can change our reactions to them. We can take control of our own minds. And this is what mind training text urges us to do. This particular text reads, When the container and contents are filled with negativity, transform adverse conditions into the path to enlightenment. Use every immediate circumstance for meditation. Possessing the four preparations is the supreme method. Container here means the environment, and contents means the beings in the environment. So the line, when the container and contents are filled with negativity, means that the environment and the beings in it are immersed in problems and difficulties. Under such circumstances, it says we should transform adverse conditions into the path to enlightenment. Let's take an example. So we get the flu and feel too rotten to do anything but stay in bed. Now we can feel sorry for ourselves, bemoan our fate and long for the days when we were able to get out and about with our friends. We can complain continually to our partner how miserable we are and how lucky they are. We can shed tears into our pillow because life is so unfair. We can do all these things, but in fact do they help? Do they stop our suffering? Or oh, some people might quite enjoy the drama of it all and making themselves the center of attention, but all they're doing is making others unhappy because nobody enjoys being in the company of a miserable complainer for long. When I first came to New Zealand in the 1970s from South Africa, Kiwis often used to talk scornfully about whinging poms. I met one when I was working as a night manager of a hotel once in the early 90s. He stayed there for a week or so, and he couldn't stop talking about how backward New Zealand was compared to England. He'd migrated out here, thinking he was coming to the Garden of Eden, but actually what he wanted 
or so it appeared from what he said, was to live in a green paradise with a job paying several hundred thousand dollars a year and a multitude of perks. Of course, in those days, such jobs were not easy to come by, especially in New Zealand, and so nothing else was right in this country. I was sitting in the front desk one night when he came in and barked at me scornfully that I had no quality of life. In fact, I was much happier than he was. I had a lowly job in an old beat-up car, no flash TV, and I lived in a rented place. But my life on the whole was enjoyable. I didn't need much, but I was able to do the things I liked and got on well with most of the people I came across. He, on the other hand, found nothing here to suit him. Everything was wrong in some way. He had a job that paid substantially more than mine and probably had a much bigger bank balance, but it wasn't enough. Kiwis were difficult to make friends with, and nothing was right. If he had judged on material advantages, he definitely had the upper hand. But when it came to quality of life, I think mine was in fact much greater. It just goes to show that how we view life counts much more than what we can get out of it. If this fellow had given up the idea of rivaling Graham Hart and just enjoyed his fa this fantastic country and its people as they are, he would have had a much better experience. I think he probably tootled back to his home country, where perhaps he is still complaining. Anyway, this is a bit of a digression. Getting back to being sick with a flu, we can, like the POM, make a big to-do about how miserable life is, or we can use our minds to change our attitude and not suffer so much. All our experiences are colored by our karma, so when we get the flu, it's also karmically related. The Tibetan tradition believes that we created the real cause to be stuck in bed coughing and sneezing our head off by some negative action in the past. Some traditions don't buy that, but all traditions say we did create the karmic cause to take this body. Having this body, we have the potential, when the conditions are right, to get the flu. So, in one way or the other, we have created the cause for our sickness. If we realize th that, then, instead of getting into a depression about the sickness, we can think that by experiencing it, we are exhausting our negative karma. Everything is impermanent, so it will definitely come to an end, and we will not have to experience that particular effect of karma ever again. It will be finished. Furthermore, if this karma didn't ripen now, it could have ripened in a much worse situation in which we were left suffering much more badly. So we can be happy that it has arisen now and that we can clear it up. For instance, when I was staying in the south of India, many stray dogs were dumped at the monastery because people knew that they would get some food there. One night we heard this terrible crying that went on and on. I went out to see what it was and found a puppy that had been run over by one of the many jeeps that bounced through the potholes that formed the road from the monastery to the village. The puppy's head was wounded and bloody and it was crying miserably. Now vets are unheard of in that part of the world and none of the monks knew what to do, so the poor dog was in a terrible situation. Eventually I think it must have died from its injuries. Of course, if it was in the West, we would have rushed it off to the vet and something could have been done to ease its pain, if not saved its life. 
But the dog didn't have the karma to be born in the West in that life, so its suffering was much greater. When we see our misfortunes in a positive life, they become much less difficult to bear, and so we suffer much less. Thinking that it's a good thing for me to suffer the flu because it eliminates some of my negative karma brings a certain level of peace and even happiness to my mind. That peace would have no chance of arising if I continually complain about my situation. But not only does such an attitude help in our present unfortunate situation, it helps us to create positive karma. Thinking like this, we can get a better understanding of karma and impermanence. It can also help us to develop renunciation. If we don't want to suffer from flu and other diseases that inflict our existence, then wouldn't it be better not to take this type of existence at all? Wouldn't it be better to gain liberation and enlightenment so that we can stop suffering like this once and for all? One teacher said that we can easily get complacent in our practice when things are going well. However, when impermanence bites and our life turns nasty, we get a big shock or a wake-up call and then it's much easier to develop renunciation and sharpen up our practice. At the same time, we can use the experience of suffering to realize that many people go through the same thing as we're going through and develop compassion. When we suffer, it often appears that we're the only one that is miserable and everyone else is happy, at least relatively. How many times have you heard of people going through some great misfortune and asking the question, Oh, why me? But that's not just true. That's just not true. For any situation we find ourselves in, there are millions of people going through much worse. And if you include animals, it probably becomes trillions. Very recently, I got an email from Avaz, a social conscience group, outlining the situation of girls and women kidnapped for the sex slave trade. The email claimed that it may happen to two girls every minute. I cannot imagine what it must be like to be separated from your family at the age of nine or ten, taken far away and beaten into submitting to sex with strange men several times a day. Can you? So when we suffer something like a relationship breakup or serious disease, thinking how others are also going through a lot of misery, some much worse than ours, we can develop some compassion. Not only can we wish for ourselves to be free of all suffering, but with some kind of compassion, we can include others in that wish also. In fact, we can take, take it to the Bodhisattva extreme and think, I wish to be free of all this samsaric misery, but so do all others. Why don't I gain enlightenment, which will free me from suffering, but will also allow me to free so many other sufferers from their pain? In this way, not only do we develop renunciation, but, we also, but also compassion and bodhicitta, another two qualities which are completely necessary to attain full enlightenment. And the list doesn't stop there. How about using a negative experience to develop patience? As you probably know by now, worrying about things actually just makes them worse and habituates our mind to a spiral of worry and misery. But instead, if we think that we're exhausting our negative karma 
and determined to accept the suffering patiently, we actually strengthen our minds. I often talk about a woman with leprosy I met who sat on the side of the road begging in McLeod Gange, the settlement where His Holiness the Dalai Lama is based. Fingers and toes were missing, and she was obviously not in great physical shape. But she always appeared happy when I passed. She greeted me with a smile, whether I gave her anything or not, and was always ready to exchange a few gentle words. She had, it seemed to me, accepted and was patient with her suffering, and her mind was at peace. Other beggars continually pestered us with loud complaints and cries, and while, of course, we knew they were practicing their acting skills, they seemed much more distressed than this patient woman. She also seemed much more at peace than many of the comparatively wealthy Westerners wandering around. But we don't have to wait until we get leprosy to practice like this. I wonder how many people have never been criticized or scolded or faced anger in their lives. I think we must all have experienced these sometime in our lives. In such a situation, of course, we can get angry ourselves and hit back, or we can practice patience. In the mind training, it's said that our enemy is actually our best friend. Why? Because our best friend very seldom gives us the opportunity to practice patience the way that our enemy does. When last, for instance, did your best friend get red in the face, yell at you with the worst swear, swear words in the English language? But an enemy is quite likely to do that. Then we have a golden opportunity to practice patience, to see the person criticizing us as somebody in a great deal of suffering. We can determine not to retaliate and give them even more suffering. One commentary jokes that the blood pressure of our enemy should be the measure of our concern. The higher the blood pressure, the greater our compassion. So we can use difficult situations to develop positive qualities of renunciation, compassion and patience. Now nobody is suggesting that this is easy. In fact, it's very far from. But if we think about the alternatives, perhaps we'll see that practicing this way becomes very necessary. For the more impatience, attachment and anger we develop, the greater will be our suffering, present and future. The more we can practice compassion, renunciation and patience, the more peaceful and calm our minds will become and the more relaxed our relationships with others. We will become more happy and so in the future things will go better. We can also use whatever realization we have of the nature of reality to help us. Remembering that nothing exists in the concrete, inherent way we see it, we can see ourselves, the problem and our suffering as all free of independent, inherent existence. Everything comes about through causes and conditions, and nothing exists in any way from its own side, not even the smallest atom. That fellow that is all puffed up and red in the face and insulting you with the darkest of language doesn't exist as an independent, inherently existing entity. It's just a coming together of various causes, conditionings and parts that the mind labels enemy. Of course, the mind doesn't see all that. The mind sees something real that exists as an independent being really intent on causing you harm. 
but the anger and the scarlet face are all just a process, a result of conditioning coming from previous causes, which themselves were also results of conditioning and causes and so on. And we ourselves are no different. We too are just an ongoing process of causes and conditioning in which energies come together, abide for a while in an always changing state, and then disintegrate into other forms. These energies are also not real, but a manifestation of causes and conditions. None of it has inherent independent existence. If we can get some grasp of this, it will relieve some of the intense grasping that leads to our suffering, and so we can experience some greater peace of mind. Thinking in this way will also contribute to our accumulation of merit and wisdom. One of the best ways to accumulate merit is to meditate on emptiness or the lack of inherent independent existence of all phenomena. And so reacting to our negative experiences with a meditation on emptiness is an excellent way to transform adverse conditions into something very valuable on our spiritual journey. Another way we can deal with suffering is to take on more of it. Yes, you probably think that's crazy, but remember the practice of giving and taking in Tibetan called Tonglen, the practice we did when we talked about developing bodhicitta. Well, when we're experiencing an uncomfortable situation, we can again remember the suffering that others go through, and some of it much more intense than, than ours. We can think, why should we all have to suffer this way? If anybody has to suffer, let it only be me. And while I am suffering now, let all others' suffering come unto me, so that they may be all free of suffering. Then, as we inhale, we imagine that we are breathing in all other beings' suffering in the form of black smoke. It dumps on and destroys the self-cherishing thought at our heart. Then, as we exhale, we breathe out all our merit and happiness and give it to others. Imagine that it goes out in the form of white radiant light which fills them and brings them everything they need for complete happiness and peace. You will find that this practice actually relieves your suffering. It doesn't increase it. Sometimes people ask whether doing this won't actually attract other suffering to yourself. But for ordinary people that's impossible. We can't experience the personal results of others' karma, good or bad, so we can't really attract another's suffering to ourselves. However, the compassionate motivation in the practice can certainly alleviate our misery. I used this technique the last time I went to the dentist. I must say I'm not scared of going to the dentist like some people are. I actually have a very nice dentist, though he doesn't agree with my belief of only going to see him when something goes wrong. Unfortunately, dentists are expensive, and I really don't have any other choice. But anyway, I had to have some dental work done and never have injections. They are, in my humble opinion, a lot more trouble than they solve. So while the dentist was drilling and scraping and doing all those very scary things dentists do, I practiced taking on not only my own pain, but the suffering of everyone else in the world as well. Even though the dentistry hurt my mouth a little, the meditation actually made my mind feel very blissful, believe it or not. And because my mind was happy, the hurt in the mouth 
actually appeared to be quite harmless. It wasn't a big thing at all. Just taking on others' suffering made my visit to the dentist a happy rather than an unhappy experience. Now imagine if instead of doing that, I had gone to the appointment terribly apprehensive and afraid. I had worried all the previous night so that by the time I got to the dentist, I was as jumpy as a cricket on a hot plate. He just had to turn on the drill and I started sweating and screaming. The suffering would be boundless and by the time I left the dentist's clinic, I would be doubly terrified of ever going back there again. It would be a torture chamber. Now which do you think is preferable? Meditating on taking on the suffering of others or worrying myself sick about the suffering I absolutely know I'm going to experience? Again, this practice may not seem easy, easy at first, but as we do it more and more, we will become more familiar and it will definitely help. I certainly don't practice it much, but it still brings a lot of benefit to my mind when I do. The great masters make this one of their main practices, and you can see the result. Not much bothers them at all. I've talked before about one great master by the name of Kirti Tsenchabrimashe, who was told in 2006 that he had life-threatening cancer. Now, he had many disciples all over the world, and he was asked by one of his attendants whether his disciples should be told or whether it should be hidden. This was his reply. Remember that Tong Lin is the practice of taking on others' suffering and giving them your happiness. This is what he said. I'm fully aware of the fact that the disease, especially at this stage, is incurable. But I'm not sad or disappointed in any way. When Professor Oliver Arya informed me of the presence of a tumor in my liver, I thought immediately that he was so very, very kind. He was extremely kind to me. We all practiced Tong Len with a specific aim to prolong the life of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Of course, I've recited certain verses from Lama Chirpa many times. And thus, compassionate gurus, we seek your blessings that all karmic debts, obstacles and sufferings of mother beings may without exception ripen upon us right now, that we may give our happiness and virtue to others and thereby invest all beings in bliss. But it was more or less mere theory for me. When I was told that I have cancer, I did not feel sad or upset. On the contrary, my mind was uplifted and it felt light and open. I thought... Finally, I have the chance to put this theory into practice now. My prayers have come true. How wonderful. I intend to use whatever time I have left in order to deepen my practice of Tong Len. What would be the benefit of trying to conceal my situation? I think it's far better that people know that I have come to manifest this tumor, and now I can really practice. I don't want you to be sad. I want you to be happy and inspired since I now have such a wonderful opportunity to practice in a way that all bodhisattvas do. My doctor has been so kind to me. Why would I ever want to hide the fact that I'm now practicing in the footsteps of the bodhisattvas? Two months later, he was very weak and hardly eating. His attendant asked him, Rinpoche, is that bad cancer causing you pain? He replied, Alec, there's no such thing as bad cancer. When you practice Tong Len, all sickness is good. If you say that you will take upon yourself the suffering of all sentient beings, you should expect some physical discomfort. It's not possible to practice Tong Len without physical discomfort. In order to practice, you must have something that causes you pain and discomfort. This illness is good. 
This illness allows me to practice. Without it, I could not practice. Alak, I'm constantly meditating, either seeing myself as the deity or equalizing and exchanging self and others. It always helps. Most of the time, I'm free of pain. I leave you today with that. I hope it gives you as much inspiration as it does me. Thank you for joining me today, and we will continue again next week if I'm still in the land of the living. Thank you, and goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.